Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. A big announcement in business. Canadian business, Canadian telecom. This being the approval from Francois-Philippe Champagne, the Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry. He has given the green light to the merger of Rogers and Shaw. That has some people a little bit concerned. Others saying, uh, you know what? This means uh, just a new direction going into the future, a strong future. Let's bring in Ben Klaas. He is a PhD candidate researcher at Carleton University's School of uh, Journalism and Communication and is researching telecoms in this country. Ben, good morning, our time. Thanks for joining us. And uh, first thoughts, first blush on this. Not unexpected, but uh, what are you thinking? Uh, good morning, Bruce. Yeah, it, you know, it isn't unexpected. Uh, but it's it's still a disappointment. You know, the minister is an elected official who's supposed to be representing the interests of Canadians. And when two telecoms merge, both of whom are owned by billionaire families, I think it's pretty clear who's benefiting and who isn't. There are many groups out there and many uh, people taking a look at this and saying it is going to hurt the average person, the consumer, especially when it comes to things like rates. Uh, The minister is saying that's not the case. And in fact, he's got assurances that uh, if that ever came to fruition, there would be some really big penalties for companies like Rogers. Uh, Does that not give you any faith or trust well, you know what? Uh, I'd like to be able to trust him, but I think we all know uh, who really wins out when you sign a contract with your telecom company. And so I think it's actually laughable that the minister would get up in front of Canadians and suggest that he's standing up for their best interests, waving around a contract that he signed with Rogers. The substance of those commitments uh, in those contracts are really nothing new. Uh, and ministers come and go. The idea that this is uh, something that's going to uh, you know, really be enforceable is debatable. Uh, and as well, you know, the, the thing you have to keep in mind is that Canadians are already paying some of the highest rates for mobile service in the world. We're not looking so good on the home Internet front either. And so, you know, to the extent that he could even claim there is going to be some improvement here, we're really, you know, we've got a long ways to go before we're, we're competitive with uh, some, some of our peer nations. Now, groups like Open Media, and we'll talk first about the Internet, they've already come out with very strong statements saying uh, this is a major blow to the Internet in this country. Uh, what do you think, and what has your research actually told you about this in terms of telecoms? You know, I think it's, it's kind of disappointing, Bruce, because uh, the research shows, you know, that throughout history, these industries um, have been highly concentrated. You know, they don't, the economics don't really permit for so much competition, especially in Canada. You know, we're looking at bigger countries like the United States uh, trying to maintain a domestic industry. So it, it historically hasn't been so great. But in the past, uh, I think about 10 years, um, the government has been pursuing this policy where they're promoting increased competition in the marketplace. And there have been some positive effects. And you know, we've started to sort of see the elephant uh, sort of starting to wake up and, and move in the right direction. But unfortunately, I think the idea that they would be blessing this merger now kind of puts a halt on that and sends us sort of heading back in the wrong direction. 
One of the other things Minister Champagne talked about uh, when, and this came up during the hearings, uh, a lot about jobs. While he says that uh, one of the things that will be coming to Western Canada is a centre with more jobs. That's got to be good news. Yeah, you know, I think if you, it remains to be seen. You know, these types of mergers typically do not lead to an an overall increase in jobs. Uh, The companies look to cut redundant positions, you know, redundant from their perspective, obviously not from the perspective of the people who are doing the work. So while you might see some jobs in uh, appearing in Calgary, it's, it, it remains to be seen whether there will be some other ones lost uh, to, to make up the difference and necessarily uh, not necessarily good, good new jobs. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think it, it remains to be seen and it's definitely contingent. We're talking with Ben Klass, uh, Carleton University School of Journalism and Communication, a researcher into telecoms in this country. And this following the announcement this morning, early this morning, I thought it was going to happen after the markets close, but uh, happened first thing in the morning. And that was Francois-Philippe Champagne, the Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry, came out, said there are a number of conditions, but the green light, you can go ahead, Rogers. The Rogers Shaw buyout is approved, and that is the last of the major uh, or last of any of the hurdles to allow for that to go ahead. This being the biggest move in telecom history when we talk about, uh, well, one of the biggest mergers in business, period. But telecom history, Ben, uh, what does this mean for the future? Well, I think, uh, you know, we've had this policy in this country where we've been trying to promote competition in these markets uh, to, you know, ensure that people have the types of choices that they need and have access to affordable services that they rely on in their lives and in their businesses. Uh, But a decision like this, I think it points us in another direction. You know, we can't rely on competition to provide these types of things when these essential services are controlled by a small number of very large firms. And unfortunately, in these types of circumstances, the recourse is uh, for regulation. You know, the government is going to, I think, if they want to deliver good outcomes for Canadian consumers and citizens and businesses, they're going to have to get more involved and be more sort of intrusive in terms of ensuring that those things uh, are, are actually delivered. And while I, you know, you'd hope that competition can deliver those types of things, when we're talking, we're not talking just about uh, sort of shoes or T-shirts here. We're talking about an essential service that we all rely on, and it's going to be more important going forward that they get those rules right. It's by no means guaranteed. It's a very hard task, and I hope uh, I hope that we'll be able to make some progress in that direction. But, you know, allowing these companies to get much bigger and much more powerful is not a good sign in terms of the government's ability to actually uh, deliver those outcomes. Right. When we talk about those outcomes, let's talk about the uh, phone side, the mobile side, and the rates in this country. Historically, historically we know Canada... Canada has some of the highest mobile rates in the world. And maybe that's because we have so much territory, not a huge population, but it is the fact that we've got some of the highest rates in the world. Rogers has consistently said that this will not lead to anything more uh, with higher rates or rates going up. What do you think is going to happen here for the average Canadian? What are they going to see immediately and in the months and years ahead when it comes to phone rates? I think that these companies uh, have been pretty successful at keeping the rates up. Uh, you know, they're consistently performing well for their shareholders. Uh, and yes, you're correct to point out that Canada has consistently scored 
uh, pretty highly, you know, not, not in a good way in terms of the prices that people pay for their mobile service. I think this merger uh, will really allow uh, companies like Rogers and its main competitors, Bell & Telus, to continue with that trend. So while we do see that people might be getting some more gigabytes for their money uh, as time goes on, um, those you know improvements have largely been due to uh, improvements in technology that are coming in across the board and to competition from companies like Freedom Mobile who've been in the marketplace as independent competitors trying to break in there. We're losing that independence going forward. And you know what? I think one of the things that's important to highlight is, is that the improvements we're seeing in Canada have been much slower than they have been around the world. And so Rogers, I think, as a result of this merger, is going to be able to continue pushing back against those improvements that people in other countries are being uh, introduced to. Lagging in innovation. Yeah, I mean, that's one of those things as we talk about 5G networks coming out, being able to serve things like connected cars and devices in your home, smart meters for your, your hydro and so on. Um, a company like Rogers, you know, when it gets control over these emerging markets, it, it, it might be a little slower than if you've got more competitors offering, uh, offering their own sort of differentiated services in the market. I always like to think two heads are better than one. Uh, you know, and in this case, we're, we're, we're basically going from a situation where you have three or four independent competitors in the market to three and then Videotron, which will be heavily reliant on Rogers to provide its service. And it's not going to have as much leeway as an independent show, at least not in my opinion. Well, thanks a lot for the opinions and some of the insights, including when it comes to innovation, what it might mean. As you said, uh, you know, how many heads do you have? Is it going to be one head or two or three heads? And what's better for coming up with ideas? Ben Kloss, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Bruce. Have a good weekend. You know, many cyclists are not going to be happy and certainly cycling advocates are not pleased with this decision. Comes out yesterday afternoon, City Council in Vancouver voting 6-3 to three in favour of a city staff recommendation. And that recommendation ultimately means that there won't be a protected bike lane or bike lanes for that Broadway corridor and the Broadway plan. Wow, that is a bold decision, but it also follows some advice and some research done by the staff. Not everybody on council, of course, three members of council, not happy with that. One of them is Christine Boyle, and uh, she's joining us now. Thank you so much, Christine Boyle, for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Bruce. You know, when I take a look at a modern city, I often think that uh, when I see pictures of planning for modern cities, I see cyclists enjoying a beautiful, you know, ride along a nice green space. Broadway right now, arguably, is not pretty at all. Sidewalks are going to be improved under this plan. But uh, what about the cyclists? Uh, Gee, did we miss out an opportunity here? I think it's a huge missed opportunity. And you're absolutely right, you know, first of all, that Broadway is right now really a terrible street for everyone. Um, And that there are cities uh, around the world boldly adding active transportation infrastructure and seeing a huge increase in use of it and improvements to their congestion challenges. You know, the reality for Vancouver and for Broadway is that whether or not there's safe active transportation lanes there, people are going to use Broadway with bikes and scooters because that's where they're going to access shops and services and because an increasing number of people are using 
bikes and scooters to do their job as gig workers, as delivery people, uh, and more. So they're going to be on Broadway, um, and having safe uh, active infrastructure there keeps scooters off of sidewalks. It keeps cyclists out of the road where they're mixed in with trucks and buses and cars. It really makes the whole space safer for everyone. And like you describe, it makes a, a vibrant, welcoming street for everyone, which is the opposite of what Broadway is now and where I wish we were headed. You know, it comes down to one of these questions. Do you build for what you have right now or what you want? And uh, this, I know staff looked into it, and uh, I commend staff. I think they have a tremendously difficult job that is not political at times or not political at all. Uh, They take a look at all the research, but the research may indicate that uh, this is a situation right now. Leadership is looking for the future, isn't it? Yeah, well, and that's the responsibility of uh, elected leaders. That's council's job is to lead. And in this case, we really failed on that front. You know, these types of capital projects are are big and expensive and disruptive. And we're in the middle of one now. This is the time to be planning for a, a future for Broadway for the next 10 and 50 years, not rebuilding it as is and pushing that decision down the road where it will obviously be more expensive and more disruptive to do later. We should be making decisions now uh, that plan for the future because it makes more sense fiscally uh, and because that's what leadership looks like. And and again, this council unfortunately really failed. Do you think it was kind of half-assed? I mean, you're really getting into a situation where you've gone ahead and are doing something positive in terms of transportation with uh, with a subway going in. That's getting cars off the road. You're certainly putting a lot of planning into sidewalks and getting pedestrians to a more friendly space, but you didn't follow through on the whole plan, right? Yeah, I think we're really we're really going to regret it, unfortunately, and and we will see that pretty quickly. I think when the subway opens and what we have is a Broadway that's much like the Broadway we had five years ago, which was unpleasant for, for everyone to be on. Um, And, you know, there just isn't going back. There are moments for us as a council um, where we make decisions that, that make real impacts on the future and, uh, and they're hard to go back on, and this is one of those moments we could have made a bold um, and uh, exciting decision that made the street safer and more vibrant that was better for the local businesses by bringing more people uh, uh, walking and rolling, stopping and shopping along Broadway. We missed that moment, um, and I, I do really worry that we will regret it for many, many years to come. We're talking with Councillor Vancouver City Councillor Christine Boyle about the decision yesterday not to include the dedicated bike plan or bike lane into the Broadway plan and what that means for the future. Now, Christine, one of the things that is often mentioned and is still being mentioned is, okay, this is the plan for right now, but built into this plan, we still have the ability to put in those bike lanes in the future. So that makes a lot of sense. That's what some of the people are saying. What's wrong with that argument in your mind? 
now is when we're already spending $50 million in partnership with the province doing that resurfacing. Why wouldn't we do it right now? Uh, You know, it's locking us into increased costs down the road. There's no way that it gets uh, less expensive to build down the road. We see that those costs going up everywhere. Um, And it's more disruptive for businesses down the road, whereas now we're doing that work anyway. We could have done it right all at once. Um, And yeah, and the ABC majority on council decided not to. I don't know if they're pushing it to some other council down the road, if the intention really is to never do it at all. Um, There wasn't clarity on that, but I think most people can understand that it doesn't make sense, as you said, to half-ass it now and see what happens later. It's not going to get easier later. There's this argument about businesses, and I guess it could come down to different opinions. But is a bike lane good for business or bad for business? Uh, A lot of people right now drive cars and need to get from one area to another. And some of that purpose is to attend businesses. Uh, I mean, is this solving a problem or or creating one? Where are we with that in terms of business? You know, study after study shows that active transportation lanes are good for business. They bring more people to those businesses because they can move more people at once and because those people are much more likely to stop and shop along the way to make an unplanned stop, to make multiple stops. In particular, active transportation is good for smaller and local businesses. People tend more often to drive to bigger box shops, um, but to to spend more money at small local shops when they're uh, on foot or walking or, 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 or biking or scooting. So in the, in the Broadway, I would like to see, it is full of small local businesses um, and the streets are full of people who are moving and meeting up with one another safely. You know, that's what a public space, a modern public space that prioritizes people rather than just prioritizing cars looks like. And it's better for business. And we see that all over the place. We've seen that locally in downtown Vancouver, where the downtown BIA was initially a bit skeptical about uh, bike lanes and really came around and became huge advocates of added bike lanes in Vancouver because they saw that it was good for business and it was good for reducing congestion. Um, The same is true on Bloor Street in Toronto, where they added active transportation lanes and they saw a significant increase in uh, traffic and and support for the local businesses along Bloor Street. So um, no shortage of great examples of how these active transportation lanes could have been good for the businesses along Broadway that we all know have been struggling through the subway construction. And who really deserve uh, all the support we can give them and deserve a council that's going to make decisions that are good for them. Christine Boyle, thanks for your thoughts. And before we go to a break and go to some calls at 604-280-9898, this decision is being made. What does it do for a precedent for future decisions when it comes to cyclists for the city of Vancouver? That's one of the things that really worries me. This was the first big decision on active transportation for the new ABC majority on council. Of course, they're 
majority on park board voted to spend nearly half a million dollars ripping out the bike lane in Stanley Park. That's another conversation, but this was the first big active transportation vote for the mayor and councillors, and um, I think they really failed. They have talked a good talk on climate and active transportation, but so far where it matters in these moments where we make decisions that show whether we really mean it or not, uh, they they let Vancouverites down, and it's a disappointment for cyclists, of course, but I really think that it's a loss for all road users for e-scooters and the possibility of a scooter share program in Vancouver that would be safe for everyone, that would keep right. scooters off the sidewalks. You know, for drivers, for everyone, this is uh, a bad decision. Taking a look at one of Vancouver's most prized neighbourhoods. I'm talking about Chinatown. Chinatown now faces kind of a double whammy. You've got those family-run businesses that are starting to close down after generations of being in operation due to, well, two factors, public safety being a real thing, and then there's the skyrocketing rents. The loss of these businesses, that strikes at the very heart of the fabric of that neighborhood, and Vancouver's Chinatown is known internationally. What a jewel. Well, to talk about what's happening and what can be done, we bring in Carol Lee, the chair of the Vancouver Chinatown Foundation. Carol, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Talk to me a little bit about these struggles. Uh, Do we have it right? Is it this double whammy of high rents and uh, public safety? Well, I'm not so sure it's about the high rents, but definitely the the public safety, I think, has been a a big one. I think that, uh, you know, tourism was sort of on the decline even before the pandemic. But, of course, uh, during and after, it's, it's been a struggle. Um, and so, yeah, it's been a, a, a little bit of a tough go. Some of our wonderful heritage uh, businesses uh, have started to close. So I think that that was um, the one that has been, I think, on people's mind lately is Kim's Kitchen. Yeah. Tell us about Kim's Kitchen and what happened there. And uh, is it kind of an experience that's being shared by others? Well, I think that there's some you know, common themes here. I mean, the restaurant business is a, is a tough business. And, you know, after one or two generations, in some instances, the, the people in the family don't want to continue to carry it on. And I actually did reach out to Robert Wu. He's the owner of Ken's Kitchen. He's been operating it for 46 years. And um, I think he's seen a, you know, big change in the neighborhood. So I think for him, it was a, a personal decision. His uh, family didn't want to continue. But for the rest of us that have been going there, like, you know, it's been a big part of our, my family's, you know, growing up. I mean, we didn't have a family banquet without having food from Ken's Kitchen. Um, we've known him. My mother still goes there once a week. Um, my family's, you know, one of like the many families that, that go there. My uncle was his lawyer, but he just, he goes, I'm tired. And, you know, I can understand it. It's a backbreaking work. And, you know, I was, calling him just to see what we could do so we'll see we'll see if there's something but well, um and you mentioned the only one What's, yeah it's it's tiring business and you know running yeah. i don't know if uh, everyone's familiar with this but i've known so many restaurant owners that could tell you how much work goes into <laughs> running a restaurant and i don't think there's anything that even compares to that 
But there's well, also you know, this I public safety. I actually happen to be a restaurant owner, and I would agree with that. Yeah. I think it is really one of the hardest businesses. And being a small business owner is challenging anyways, but to be a small uh, business, which is a restaurant, makes it even harder. And if you tack on to that, you're operating in Chinatown, that really makes it tough. And so I understand why these restaurants are closing. The one next door to I run something called Chinatown Barbecue, and my next door neighbor um, is Daisy Garden. And, and they also announced uh, earlier this year that they were going to be closing. But that was a slightly different um, consideration. She said it was really hard to find workers to work in the restaurant. So Absolutely. So there's, lots, there's lots of challenges. <laughs> Carol Lee, you talked about uh, changes in the neighborhood, and I mentioned public safety. Um, where does that factor into this? Well, it just, it kind of, I think it wears people down um, over time. And, you know, this has been something that's sort of been happening, I think, for the last decade. And just slowly, you know, if you have an opportunity to have a business here or maybe uh, move somewhere else, you can, I can understand why people want to do that. But I'm, I'm confident there is a new generation of, of restaurateurs that are wanting to come to the neighborhood. So I think what we're trying to do is, we want to welcome those, but the balance between the old and the new. I think the legacy businesses really do give the neighborhood a certain character, and I think that's why it's so heartbreaking when we have restaurants like Daisy Garden, Goldstone, yeah. Mitzi's, Kent's Kitchen closing down after having operated here for you know, many decades. I talked a little bit about uh, the high rents, and you say that's not really that big a factor, but there are so many business factors that make it really expensive. Let's talk about some of those yeah. that are the big challenges. Well, I think that, you know, rent isn't, I don't think it's the biggest one, but I'm, I'm sure it's a factor, depending on where you're renting. But, you know, even wages, food costs, you've got inflation. And I think that historically Chinatown has been known as a place where you could get sort of cheap eats. So that makes it very difficult when all of the costs are rising. And yet it sort of implies that, you know, you'll keep things affordable. So I think it, they have a little bit more of a challenge here in Chinatown. In Ken's Kitchen, actually, the rent went up 30%. So it still is an issue. Um, well, and- actually, you know what? We talked to the land. I don't believe that that was an issue. I don't think that it was the rent issue because I, I, I talked to Robert about it. And um, he has quite a, a, a nice landlord, you yeah. know, very amenable. But I, I think that, you know, even even to lower the rent, it, that is not really the issue. I think it is just, you know, he's 63 years old. He works seven days a week. Um, no vacations. Very tough work. No vacations. And he doesn't have anybody in his family that wants to, to take it over. So these are the kind of challenges. And, and so at the foundation, you know, we're, we actually we just hired somebody for the head of um, the director of economic revitalization, because I think this is going to be a really important thing that we look at over the course of the next, you know, three to five years. How do we support these legacy businesses? How do we help new businesses that want to come into Chinatown? And good, because I want to get into that. And as the chair of the Vancouver Chinatown Foundation, what action can you take to counter some of these pressures? Well, first of all, I think I, I want to say that one of the things that I think that we've done uh, in the last few years is really bring attention to the importance of Chinatown. So we now have a lot of support from government. 
So, you know, in the um, with the new council, they passed a motion for uplifting Chinatown uh, earlier on in this year. Uh, the federal government through Pacific Can uh, gave Chinatown a grant of one point eight million for physical infrastructure. And I think the province is also um, wanting to do something. So so we've got government support. And I think that what we're trying to do at the foundation is is now looking at beyond the sort of like this trying to fix the sort of the safety issue and the beautification. How do we help local businesses? And I think that that is going to be a little bit not a one size fits all, but, you know, sort of, I would say, individual help for individual businesses. Carol, I'm glad those discussions are underway because it really is a jewel and not just for tourists, and it is for tourists, uh, but also for those of us who grew up in the Vancouver area. Chinatown is magic and uh, glad that we've got people like you that are looking for new ways to help and support the businesses. I'm, I'm very optimistic. Good. So am I. Optimistic <laughs> and uh, hoping for the best. Carol Lee, thanks so much for uh, sharing thanks your so time with us. Well, I want to move a little bit south and talk about an entirely different neighborhood, but continue with some of the challenges that the businesses face. And in White Rock, you may be familiar with this if you've ever gone down along Marine Drive, which I would also argue is one of the best drives on a beautiful day or around sunset that you can find anywhere in the lower mainland. Go down around uh, the White Rock Pier area and uh, grab a meal. Absolutely fantastic. But, you know, a big move. They're getting rid of the free parking during the winter months. Now, you may recall that this was a bit of a break for many of the businesses that uh, struggled during the pandemic and struggled around the time when the pier was hit by a storm and taken out. But uh, now things are returning a little bit back to normal and uh, White Rock faces its own financial challenges. And along with that comes next winter where you're going to have to pay for parking once again. Let's bring in White Rock City Councillor Ernie Clausen, who has also been involved on the business side. And uh, Ernie, thanks for joining us. Have I got it right? Are those some of the pressures and realities that uh, we have faced in White Rock when it comes to uh, parking? Yes. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, those are definitely... um, It's never easy when you're in a city that uh, depends partially on tourism to... uh, uh, help the business community for sure, but yes, it's a beautiful uh, it's a beautiful place to be, and it's a beautiful drive. And I'd like to invite all the listeners to come out to White Rock and support our small businesses out here. Yeah, except driving and parking down there is a hell that is uh, uncomparable to many others for drivers. I'll offer that, and um, you know, when it comes to parking, it's not just the fact that there are. Um, meters everywhere. I mean, that's common in other areas, but there aren't too many spaces. I know you've got the new parquet that's uh, built just a block back off of Marine Drive. Is that helping? And is that part of the reason why when it comes to uh, the winter months, we're going to have to go back to pay parking? Uh, Well, in the winter months, there is really not much of an issue with parking. Um, Not that, you know, White Rock is a very uh, sunny community, 
And so in the wintertime, the parking lots and the parkade are fairly full. However, um, it usually isn't a problem to park in the winter months uh, on the pier because tourism obviously is more of a summer issue than than winter issue. And uh, in the winter, there's plenty of parking for the locals as well as for guests alike. How many people live in White Rock now? Uh, it's roughly 20,000 people. It's uh, one of the smallest, well, it's the smallest geographical city in Canada and um, one of the smaller population-wise cities in Canada as well. So economies of scale are really an issue when it comes to the city finances. And I can understand how you want to get more money and uh, maybe it is extending it out to parking. But is this really the move that you want to make to even be seen as a city council taking away the free spaces for any period of time? I mean, it's hard to argue that it's just uh, summer months are the busy time. Uh, You know, many of the business owners down there would love to see more people in the winter. That's right. Um, All businesses would love to see more people in the winter, uh, including the ones on the waterfront. And uh, I'm not on the waterfront, but... You know, my business is uh, somewhat seasonal as well. Uh, So, yes, we would love to provide free parking in the wintertime, but that uh, just fiscally is not possible. Uh, We we have just gone through the entire process of budgeting for the next year, and uh, we opened it up to citizens to make comments, and we didn't really receive, if I recollect correctly, I don't believe there was one person who asked that we continue with free parking or increase free parking times, but um, overwhelmingly the majority of comments were, please reduce property taxes. At the beginning of the process, when we were looking at the taxes, we were looking at a nine-point-something tax increase, and we've reduced it to just right around 7%. So, um, taking away the free parking during the winter months was one of the um, one of the ways that we could reduce property taxes slightly. Understandable, and every city in the Lower Mainland is facing a financial challenge. To That's use the best and most polite word right now. Uh, <laughs> now, when it comes to parking, is it actually the parking that you get the revenue from, or is it the penalties and enforcement? Because I, I can tell you, in White Rock, you're going to get a ticket pretty quickly if you deserve one. Well, I suppose if you deserve one, it doesn't matter how how quickly or how long it takes to get one. Uh, but no, it's not the parking tickets that um, have the hugest, the, the largest amount of tax. Uh, it's, it's definitely the parking that brings in a lot of revenue into the city. And that parkade over uh, just a block up from Marine Drive, brand new parkade, how's that helping uh, with the whole business and, uh, and parking situation in the area? Oh, it's been a huge help. And again, especially during the summer months, um, the parking lots that are right along the waterfront, uh, you know, in the summertime, and even on a sunny day in the wintertime, they are um, not overflowing, but in the summertime they are overflowing. But the parkade has been a huge asset to, um, to parking down on the waterfront. There's no doubt about it. 
Absolutely. And uh, as I said, I love going down there on any sunny day, especially around sunset and uh, just enjoying that whole area. You live in a uh, beautiful place and uh, I envy you. Well, thank you. I mean, I would love to, and I campaigned on, let's add a tagline to the White Rock City by the Sea and call, uh, use the tagline, the sunset capital of Canada. You know, tourism, like I keep saying, is one of our, our largest uh, economic boosts in the city, and um, we have no, no farmland, we have no commercial uh, properties to speak of. So um, tourism is, is a huge benefit to the, um, to the tax base for the city of White Rock. It seems uh, days and days ago, but it was only Tuesday when we heard about the federal budget and what was in it. One of the things that we were looking for was some sort of help or announcement on affordable housing in helping those in a housing crisis, whether it be future buyers or renters. And we brought in Max Fawcett, uh, lead columnist for Canada's National Observer, to talk about affordable housing and the budget. And there was a lot to unpack, but I felt at the time that we didn't spend enough time at that point talking about what Max Fawcett uh, so nicely outlined in Canada's National Observer. The fact that young people are about to get screwed by the budget and did. That uh, following the budget, that's the headline in the National Observer, not my words, theirs. So I thought, you know what, let's bring back Max. And he kindly agreed to join us again. And with that set up, uh, Max, thanks so much for being back with us. Happy to be back. Thanks for having me on again. You know, we did talk a little bit about affordable housing, but uh, getting to the people that really have to look for some sort of inspiration, I guess, from government when it comes to help, uh, young people really didn't get much, did they? No, it was a pretty big goose egg on the housing front. Um, you know, there, there was uh, the creation of a previously announced uh, savings account for, for your down payment for your house, uh, which you know, uh, that, I guess that helps people that, that are able to save a lot of money. It, it does feel like it's sort of helping the people who don't really need the help, but uh, it was a measure that was in there. But in terms of transformational investments in, you know, public housing uh, or policies that would bring housing prices down to the point where they would become more affordable, meaningful support for renters, none of that was in there. And, you know, if, you, if you're a young person who's trying to make your way in the world and, and trying to build a build a life with your family, have kids, whatever it might be, this stuff is really dispiriting. You know, it's really dispiriting to watch rents go up 30% in a year, which is what ha- what has happened in many markets in Canada. You know, it's just dispiriting to look at houses and see that the cheapest ones are all seven figures, as as is the case in you know Toronto and Vancouver and some other markets. It's just it's it's a real gut punch and. You know, Pierre Polyev, uh, you know, conservatives don't generally do that well with uh, younger voters, but Pierre Polyev is talking about this issue in a way that I think is really connecting with a lot of people. And the liberals need to be careful not to take those votes for granted because, you know, if you're a young person and you you look at your housing situation and and see how dire it is, maybe you're going to roll the dice and just say, you know what, let's give this guy a shot. At least he's talking about the things I care about in a way that resonates with me. Well, I think there was a big disconnect here, and I know that something had to be done about affordable housing, and it seemed like the big headline out of it, if there was any headline to be gained from this, was the fact that uh, 
you're going to be able to contribute this $40,000 and uh, the up the amount that you can contribute into a fund to help you with your down payment. That doesn't mean anything in terms of the price of housing, not even in Vancouver or Toronto. I'm talking about any cities uh, in the country, maybe save uh, Regina or Saskatoon. Yeah, it's, tr- it's true. And, and, you know, one of the problems is everything that the government seems to want to do on housing pushes the price of housing up, right? Uh, you know, it's supportive of demand. So, you know, if, if people are able to save more for the down payment, well, that makes prices go up. If people are able to, uh, you know, extend their amortization, as was done under the Harper government, that tends to make housing prices go up. So everything that, that is billed as help is helping people in their individual situations, perhaps, but in the overall picture, it just keeps putting more fuel on the fire. And at some point, we have to have a conversation. I think, you know, we should have had it a long time ago, but now is as good as any, about what we do to put the fire out. And that's going to require people to, to come to terms with the fact that house prices might go down. Okay, they might go if down we- a lot. If we have that conversation, Max, what uh, would be some of the things that the government has to get a little bit more in touch with? And I'm not just talking this liberal government. I mean, a government of any political stripe. What do they have to figure out here? Well, there's definitely the supply side. So the governments have to be a little more thoughtful and aggressive on ensuring that that local concerns, you know, not in my backyardism, as it's called, does not get in the way of building more supply. You know, we're not building enough houses in this country. I think everyone has come around to that position, uh, liberal or conservative, and and we need to throw as much money and political resources at at that as possible. And again, Pierre Poiliev is sounding a lot more credible on that front than, than the government is right now. But we also have to have a conversation about, and this is very dangerous politically, but, but the capital gains in our homes that we're allowed to accrue without paying taxes on them. You know, we have, we have an unlimited amount of free capital gains in our homes. And for some people, that's millions of dollars. And, you know, I, I am, I have written about it many times. I think we should be considering something where it's a lifetime limit, you know, maybe 500,000, maybe less, maybe more, but a lifetime limit on your capital gains so that you can't use it to keep buying homes, speculating, uh, you know, doing transactions, whatever it might be, there's a limit to how much wealth you can extract from your house. And I think that would definitely have an impact on prices, but it would also, you know, introduce some fairness into the system, both for new buyers and for young people who don't have parents uh, with, with homes with lots of capital gains in them. You know, the housing market right now, in many respects, just reinforces the inequality that's already present in our society. And, and the government has a you know, responsibility to do something about that. Well, let's talk about that inequality because I would agree with you, Max, and say the housing market is set up for people that have external help, not based on their income. Uh, the average person, I don't know if it's average or not, but the, the person who is younger, who is just making a normal wage, even a professional wage has gone through education and uh, accrued a lot of debt doing it is not going to be able to have any chance of buying a house in this country. Are we ever going to be able to square that? You know, I'm not sure that we can get all of the toothpaste back in the tube on that front. You know, it's not like we can make Vancouver house prices go back to where they were in the 1990s or the 1980s. I'm not sure we would want to quite frankly, but we need to create some paths to, 
security of tenure for people so that, you know, maybe you don't come, you know, maybe whether you're a new Canadian, whether you're a young Canadian, maybe you don't have to buy. Maybe there's a system in place or, or some sort of structure where you can rent or you, you live in a co-op. I grew up in a co-op. Uh, it was great, but we didn't build any equity, right? That's the trade-off. And, and the government got out of the co-op game in the 90s uh, and never got back into it. And, I, you know, the, the federal government has sort of dipped its toe in that water in the last few years, but it needs to do more than dip its toe. It needs to jump in with both feet. And I think that would be a very meaningful way to give people more options, um, you know, certainly some focus on rentals and making long-term rentals uh, at least more predictable uh, in terms of what people are going to pay for them. But at the, you know, at the end of the day, if, if, if more and more of your budget goes towards housing, that's less and less you can spend on going out to restaurants, on vacations, on a whole bunch of other businesses that our economy depends on. And it makes it really difficult for you to build wealth and build a life for yourself. And that's what this country should be striving towards achieving. Everyone should have the opportunity to make their lives better. And the housing market right now in a lot of parts of the country is actively interfering with that. Oh, for sure. And it's that percent that concerns me because it really is going in the wrong direction. I remember 15 years ago, I moved from being a renter having a very nice apartment in Steveston overlooking the water, 600 square feet. And at the time, my rent was roughly equivalent to buying a townhouse in Surrey and uh, with a monthly mortgage. It'd be about the same. Well, fast forward to 15 years later, I can't find anyone that's paying anywhere near as uh, in rent, anyone that's paying anywhere near what I'm paying for a mortgage. They're paying way more, not just in Vancouver, but even in the suburbs. It's ridiculous. And I don't think that this is being figured out by government. How do we reverse that? Well, we need people to put it at the top of their ballots. Um, you know, honestly, politicians respond to incentives. They, they do things because they think that doing those things will help them get elected or stay elected. And I think for better or worse, uh, housing has kind of slipped down the list for a lot of people, uh, for a lot of politicians. They, they don't think that it's as important as I think it is. And, you know, if, you, if, if young people who are most directly affected by this, who are, who are feeling the brunt of, of this housing market and the issues that it creates for them, if they show up to the ballot box and they put this on the top of their vote, uh, they, will, they will shake things up and politicians will react. And so, you know, that would sort of be my message is, you know, if you're a young person uh, who who is troubled by this, put aside your partisan commitments. You know, I voted this in the last election or I voted that. Listen to what the politicians are actually saying about housing and how they're going to help you and vote accordingly. Um, you have to be willing to send a message. Well, that may scare a lot of politicians if they come to that reality that maybe some of the votes they've always counted on aren't going to be there. Max, when it comes to uh, building supply, uh do we have to change our ideas about how people live, especially if they're young? I think so. I, I mean, I think the, the certainly in, in cities like Vancouver and Toronto, where there's just not a ton of land, you know, the idea that everyone gets a white picket fence and a backyard and a single family home is not realistic. Uh, there's just so much demand to be in those cities and there's a finite amount of space. The only direction you can go up is up. Uh, so, you know, I think we do need to, Think about living in, in smaller spaces, in you know, which are, by the way, way better for the environment and all sorts of other great things. But we have to build amenities around that that make it worthwhile. You know, I, I don't think 
young people should be asked to accept a lower quality of life just because, uh, you know, we can't build enough housing. So, you know, if we're building these big condo projects, if we're building, uh, you know, multi-level mixed use uh, sort of uh, structures, we need to ensure there's public amenities nearby, you know, parks, schools, uh, grocery stores, all that stuff, transit, so that living that way is attractive. And I think, you know, we're seeing some good signs on that front, but we need to do more. We need to see more investment uh, in the infrastructure around those those choke points. And then, by the way, we need to be willing to stand up to the community associations and the sort of established homeowners who will inevitably complain about any tall structure being built near them. You yeah. know what? Too bad. Too bad. You know, you've made a bag of money by virtue of just living where you live and sitting on land. You don't get to tell other people how they get to live as well. And you definitely don't get to tell them that they can't afford to have a, uh, a roof over their own head. Okay, well, so we too need- bad, so sad, and uh, bye-bye view. Um, but, uh, yep. Max Fawcett, uh, you, uh, full credit to you. You're great with following this as a topic. What is the next angle you'll be looking into? On housing, um, I'm, I'm looking into the, the role that immigration is playing, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I think, I think there is a real risk right now that the, the housing market and the pain that it's inflicting on a lot of people is going to cause people to look at immigration less favorably than they have in the past. And that would be a huge loss for Canada. Our attitude towards immigration, we are the most tolerant, welcoming country on earth, I think, when it comes to bringing other people in is a huge economic advantage for us. It's a huge social advantage. It makes life richer uh, in any number of ways. But if people start asking questions about why we're letting so many people in because it's driving house prices up, there's a real risk that, that bad faith actors can weaponize that. They can turn that into anti-immigration sentiment. And, and we, we backslide. And I don't want to see that. So, you know, I, I think our politicians need to understand that, that the housing crisis is going to spill over into other areas uh, if they don't take action immediately. Max Fawcett, looking forward to that, and always a good read. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Bruce. Anytime. Let's talk about cuts to Surrey libraries. And this is a real concern for some teachers being brought forward. You see, the teachers in Surrey are expressing concern over a decision that they say is going to have an impact on library uh, services for students. According to the Surrey Teachers Association, an increase in prep time for teachers for grade one to three is coming at the expense of some older students and their valuable time in the library. Why? Well, the librarians are being asked to do additional supervision. Why is it that we cut into some of the library time for that? Well, to answer some of the concerns there, we bring in Lizanne Foster. She is the first president of the Surrey Teachers Association. Good morning, Lizanne. Good morning. You know, every time I hear something that is happening in the school system with a contract or something that's being reallocated because of time, I just shake my head because it seems like it's always one step forward and two steps back. Tell me a little bit more about what's happening with uh, Surrey in terms of this library situation. Thanks, Bruce. So this is really a, a, a absolutely a one step forward, two steps back. When we bargained our new contract, we were quite excited to hear that we would be getting 10 minutes more of um, elementary prep time. And so we saw that as a gain and as a win. 
So the the of course it's provincial bargaining. So the provincial government, of course, bargained with the the BCTF, and we got that ten minutes of extra uh, prep time, so that uh, teachers in elementary school would have more time to to prepare lessons. But when that um, win has landed down in the district, the district has taken a different interpretation, and so they have essentially turned what should have been a win into a loss. So what they've done now is they've said, okay, we're going to allocate those minutes in a time, in a way that's going to cost intermediate students but have a gain for K-3 to teachers. And if we had known that when we bargained that win back in November, October, November, if we had known that it would come at a cost to uh, if this kind of cost, we would have bargained something different. And the other thing is, usually when we're talking about things in schools, we're talking about not enough funding. There's not enough funding. This time, there is funding. The government actually funded the tech extra minutes. So, so the district is getting the money for these increasing minutes. But they have done this kind of, it's not exactly a bait and switch, but it's, it's giving us a bill of goods that is not what we bargained for. And that is what is infuriating for us. It sounds like it's not just a allocation or a reallocation of time. But it sounds like it's a bit of a lack of priority or understanding of what a librarian actually does. Yes. And I so I think uh, thank you so much for pointing that out. There's so few people who understand that. So libraries, you know, 50, 60 years ago, they were quiet places. You went and you just exchanged a, a book and you, you sat quietly and you read. But libraries now are actually called in schools library learning commons because it's a dynamic place. There's all kinds of things that happen there. And our Surrey School teacher librarians won an award. <laughs> In October 2022, they were recognized by the Canadian school libraries for their innovative, dynamic, integrative activities that they do in the libraries. And what's happening now is that the school district has essentially reduced these award-winning teacher librarians, reduced their capacity to do the thing that they won the award for. So it's almost like they've been rewarded for their award with a kind of regression because essentially what the school district is doing is trying to turn the libraries away from being these 21st century places of engagement and dynamic you know, integration of robotics and digital citizenship and all these kind of integrated things. They're turning it back now to, to, towards the time when libraries were just these quiet places for book exchanges. Yeah. Well, the modern library, and I say this as the parent of a grade seven student in Surrey uh, who Mm -hmm. loves the library, but the Mm -hmm. modern library is so different now than uh, how it was back when I was a kid. Um, I mean, it it is a magical place. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really the best place. When we do school visits, you know, as a union, we go to different schools. We love going to 
<laughs> elementary library. It's a place of delight and just interest and curiosity. It's also a safe space for students. You know, if you are a student who is feeling uncomfortable with all kinds of questions about whether it's identity or you're being bullied, the library is where you can get information on all kinds of empowering things. You can know that you're safe. You can also kind of like entertain your curiosity. You can find out about all kinds of things. And the teacher librarian works very closely with all teachers in the school to create these kinds of lesson plans and resources that individual teachers don't have time to do. So they are critical and they were they absolutely deserved the award that they got as our teacher librarians because they, they do amazing. They really, really do amazing work. Lizanne, is there anything that the Surrey Teachers Association is doing to make sure that this is not the final word? Well, we have tried several things. We have written a letter. We've had a meeting with the superintendent. We've gone to the board of trustees. We've done presentation at the board of trustees. We had three teacher librarians present what their work is and what this impact would be. We are absolutely imploring them to not do this because of the, the devastating impact it's going to be. And all that appeal has landed on deaf ears. And so now we are, um, we are, we had the press conference um, yesterday and we are making this appeal now. The old media outreach. We'll take it to the media then and go on the talk shows. No, I appreciate your time. That's a, a fantastic insight into what's happening and appreciate that. Lizanne Foster, first president of the Surrey Teachers Association. Well, Donald Trump got himself indicted. What that really means, we find out on Tuesday as we hear more about the indictment then, with Donald Trump appearing in New York. American political historian and author of 12 books, including The Case for Impeachment, Alan Lickman says the media has it wrong in some of the speculation about this case and the grand jury indictments. Well, we had a chance to talk with Alan Lickman and uh, asked, you know, is this a chance for the next book to be the case for indictment? <laughs> I think that that train has already passed. You know, he's already been indicted in New York. And it looks like, at least according to media commentary, 34 separate counts. You know, a lot of the mainstream media, even independent media, have been way off base in their analysis of this indictment. Yeah, what you know, do we get? They've claimed it was a weak, questionable case, and they don't even know what the charges are or what the evidence is. It's not released publicly yet. And until Tuesday, it's uh, it's just pie in the sky and a lot of guessing, isn't it? Uh, everybody, including talk show hosts, uh, we're going to make our best guess as to what's going to come out. But you're a guy who has a record of guessing and doing it quite well. So what do you think? I think that the media is off base. It's just my guess. Uh, I think that this will involve a much greater range of financial crimes than uh, the media has suggested. Look, the Trump organization was already found to be criminally liable for tax fraud. It had to pay the maximum New York State fine of $1.6 million. 
dollars. You know, everyone is assuming that this is tenuously linked to a campaign finance violation for a federal election. Right. But it may well be linked to tax fraud. If, in fact, Trump claimed that the payment to Stormy Daniels was a business expense, not a personal expense, and then deducted that business expense from his New York State taxes, that could uh, lead to his being indicted for tax fraud. You know, you're talking about 34 counts. That's got to be a pretty serious indictment. And it doesn't matter that this is the first one. Each of these investigations in New York, in Washington with the Department of Justice in Georgia, is separate and independent. And each uh, investigation will rise and fall on its own merits. It makes absolutely no difference for this indictment that there may be other more serious indictments, such as inciting an insurrection to overturn the peaceful transfer of power. Look, if you're indicted for bank robbery, it doesn't matter whether you might or might not be charged for the more serious crime of murder in another jurisdiction. You're still going to be held to account and go through the legal process for the charge of bank robbery. Same thing here. The uh, Republicans can smear Alvin Bragg, the New York prosecutor, yep. all they want. And the attacks have been outrageous. Trump called the African-American prosecutor an animal. David falsely claimed he was manipulated by the Jewish financier uh, and Holocaust survivor George Soros when the two have never met and have never spoken to one another. And this is a familiar conservative meme, you know, that this Jewish mastermind trying to control the country is manipulating black people to his evil purposes. Alan, at the end of the day, these things better stick and they better rise, I guess, to the level of a felony if you're going to go after a former president. And at least that's what some people are saying. Do you buy into that argument? In part, uh, I have no doubt that if there are 34 counts, these are not 34 misdemeanor counts, I would imagine. And again, none of us know. So keep that disclaimer in mind that these counts do rise to a felony. And uh, look, you never know in advance what's going to happen when you go before a jury. And we don't know, and I keep repeating this, what evidence the prosecutor has. But just from what we publicly know, this is the kind of case that a jury can understand. It's real simple. He paid off a porn star who had alleged that he was, have, that he was having an affair with her. He then falsified his business records potentially creating campaign finance violations and tax fraud and other business-related violations. It's real simple. Much more complicated would be the case, you know, that he incited an insurrection to overturn the government. Ellen, as you've pointed out, we don't know at this point. But you, as a person that's predicted every presidential election result correctly, since 1984, what would it take, or would you say 
is there still a possibility that Donald Trump may end up being the president again? Well, as you know, my predictions over the last 40 years that have been correct are based on a system. And at this point, uh, it's too early to say. Uh, however, I can tell you this, and this is some interesting inside information based on my system, that uh, the election will rise and fall not on the identity of the Republican nominee, but on the strength and performance of the party holding the White House. That's the basis of the keys to the White House, my prediction system. And the Democrats are far better off with having Biden run again rather than having this become an open seat contest. If Biden doesn't run again, the Democrats would lose two keys, the sitting president key and the internal party battle key, because there's no heir apparent. Take six keys to count out the party holding the White House, they'd only need to lose four more. Whereas if Biden runs again and they secure those two keys, they would need to lose six more keys. You may have heard this one in the news. Just when you thought you knew everything about dinosaurs and your favorite dinosaur was that scary beast with the big jaws and teeth, well, maybe you have to revisit some of those notions because a new study says Tyrannosaurus rex, the favorite of many of ours, while T-Rex may have had big, scaly lips. That's right, more like a lizard than that scary beast that we you know, fondly remember from childhood books. It's time to rethink it, possibly. Well, let's bring in Derek Larson. He's a paleontology collections manager at the Royal BC Museum. Derek, thanks for uh, joining us. Thank you for having me. Still a scary beast or just kind of a uh, sexy animal with nice lips? <laughs> well, the uh, the lips we are predicting aren't very large. Um, I would say that uh, T-Rex is definitely still a scary animal, but perhaps a little bit more personable now that it has more of a face. Yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I look at so many pictures, and I think when you say dinosaur to anybody, mm -hmm. the first dinosaur they think of, the average person, maybe not a paleontologist, but the average person, it's T-Rex, right? And yep. the reason for that and the reason why T-Rex is so popular with, like, uh, young kids is that big, ferocious jaw with the teeth. Is that yeah. still the case? Did it still have a big jaw with teeth and just lips that kind of covered it up? Or what are we finding? What does this study find? So what we were interested in is... Um, trying to figure out whether or not um, they likely had lips or not. And so the closest living relatives of dinosaurs are crocodiles. And crocodiles, you may know, uh, don't have lips. They close their mouth and you can still see a number of their teeth sticking out. Uh, and we wanted to see if dinosaurs likely matched that pattern or looked a little bit more like a lizard in that they have uh, a thin sort of flap of skin or outside. They're not muscular lips. And we determined that based on the wear patterns of the teeth and a number of other features, including the size and, uh, and the structure of the enamel, the hard coating on the outside, that they more closely resemble lizards. How do you figure that out? What's the, uh, what did you look at to, to come up with that? 
So one of the notable things about enamel is it's very hard. It's the hardest substance that the natural body can make. And uh, that also means that it can be very brittle. However, if you hydrate enamel, if you add water to it, uh, it can be very resilient to breaking. It becomes a little bit more flexible. And so in, in crocodiles, they live in the water. So they don't hydrate their enamel the same way that we do or that lizards do. And uh, they're, they're getting all the water they need from the surrounding environment. But their teeth still wear very specifically. They break very easily. We don't find those same patterns in dinosaurs. They do wear, but very, very slowly. And most dinosaur teeth are very well preserved, and they don't break nearly as often as crocodile teeth do. So when you compare the notion of Tyrannosaurus rex of old, our old uh you know, whatever was in the back of our mind. With this new idea, how different would the appearance be? It would be very similar, except that when the mouth was closed, you wouldn't be able to see the teeth. I think it would be, you know, a much more uh, uh, open and inviting face. Like I said, still a a scary predator. It would be, uh, you know, like our our very large predators today, like uh, bears or wolves and, and things. They can, they're still very scary, even though you don't always see their teeth. Does this, beyond the cosmetics, lead to anything else that's a better understanding of T-Rex? Yeah, so knowing more about these specific animals that lived millions of years ago really help us to get a better picture of what was going on. And the more accurate we can be, the better. So knowing that tyrannosaurs and other predatory dinosaurs likely had lips uh, can inform how they're using their jaws, how they're eating, what they're eating, and all of these sorts of things. So there's compounding effects from just getting more and more information accurate. Now, T-Rex has played out in popular culture a lot, so there are going to be these, and you point out it's not a big change, but it is a difference between what we now know in this study and what we thought. Uh, Some of the movies that we had T-Rex in in the past uh, may be a little bit different going forward when they do movies about dinosaurs. But what about museums around the world? Is this a big enough change that museums will have to re-examine some of their exhibits? Well, we hope so. And I think the evidence is very strong to support our case. Um, Not everybody in the scientific world is going to agree with us. That's the nature of science. And, you know, uh, new information might come along or there might be differences of opinion. But we do think that this evidence is is going to catch on. And we hope that people will start reconstructing their dinosaurs, you know, making new drawings and representations of what they look like with lips. And so... um, that the, the public and also the museum-going folk will, uh, will get more used to that idea. I think it makes us chuckle when we talk about lips and T-Rex, but we must have uh, found out some things about other dinosaurs of late. Any other revelations? Uh, well, I mean, this isn't directly tied into the study, but another sort of shift in how we've thought about dinosaurs over the last 20 years is the fact that, that many dinosaurs likely had feathers, the, fe- the dinosaurs that were most closely related to birds. And so that's been a big shift, is this shift from sort of like big scaly monsters to uh, animals with more feathers. We think that T-Rex still had feathers, but certainly there were there sort did not have feathers, but there were certainly other predatory dinosaurs that did, in in fact, even some close relatives of T-Rex. So, um, you know, the dinosaurs that we think about now have changed over the decades as we've understood more about them and will probably continue to change as we get more information. 
For years and years and years, dinosaurs were big in a certain age category for kids. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think it's like uh, kindergarten, maybe up until grade one or two, maybe other side of that. What do you find? Uh, Who's got the big interest when it comes to dinosaurs? Oh, definitely kids. Uh, they're a fantastic uh, fount of knowledge. Uh, they're, they're learning all the new dinosaur names, and, and, you know, we're still finding new dinosaur species around as well. So there's usually um, at least dozens, if not hundreds, of new dinosaurs that get named every year because people are going out into new places and finding new fossil bones or, or really collecting heavily in areas that we've known about before but haven't known everything about before. So we're always filling in gaps in the fossil record. And the kids, they're, they're some of the best experts uh, of the public when it comes to new information. Okay, Derek, before we let you go, if it isn't T-Rex, which is the coolest dinosaur right now? Which is the coolest dinosaur right now? Well, that's very interesting. I, I am, am a big fan of, uh, of the meat-eating dinosaurs, but um, when I was a kid, one of my favorites was Brachiosaurus, one of the long-necked dinosaurs, which also features it in Jurassic Park. So uh, that's it's definitely big. up there in terms of coolest. Yes, it's one of the larger uh, long-necked dinosaurs. Not the largest, but it's pretty big. There you go. Derek, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.